Thank you. I was hoping that you'd say that. <laughs> so if you have Bibles with you today, you can open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So we're on this journey together. And since I got here, I've told you that um, as far as I feel led by the Spirit uh, for us, is that we're on this 1 Corinthians 14.1 journey that says, Pursue love, eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. And I've told you, I want, I'm a man, I want to live a supernatural life in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'd like to help you do the same. I think it's maybe some of the best that I have to offer you, <laughs> is that piece of it. But I've done this long enough that I know that there are some things that we need to do first to get there. And I think this verse explains it well. Before I can teach you the things that I've learned about spiritual gifts and especially prophetic gifts, I think we need to do the pursue love part of 1 Corinthians 14. And so that's what we're in. We're in the, the part where we're learning that the Father loves us lavishly and extravagantly. And that from that place of confidence that we can move forward and more effectively love one another. And this I'm convinced. Haven't seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of people who've experimented with spiritual gifts in the past. <laughs> Any, am I alone? Has anybody else seen the good, the bad, and the ugly? This I know. <laughs> that if we have an atmosphere of love, if we've cultivated an, an atmosphere of love, a culture of love, in our midst where we're convinced the Father loves us and we effectively love one another, it's a safer place to explore the gifts, to experiment and practice the gifts. So that's, that's the journey that we're on, and we're still in the pursue love phase. So I've, I spent about two much, months speaking about that we would be a people who live loved, that we live convinced that we're loved by our Heavenly Father, and that the next step is, is that we would be a people who, who live love, in that we love one another. And scripture says that we love because He first loved us. I think that's how it works. We experience his love for us, and then we love one another. So we're, we're in the middle of that part of 1 Corinthians 14 love, the pursue love part. And so we've taken a little bit of break the last few weeks. We kind of talked about vineyard stuff. And so we had a great visit with some of the, the regional and national leaders last weekend. It was a really good time uh, connecting with those guys. And, and so next weekend, I'm going to begin this new series on, on living love and how we love one another. So I have a... A little break in between, so today I'm going to, instead of doing, beginning a new series, I'm going to do a one-of. One-of, those little sermons where you know, I only have one of them. <laughs> and, um, and so, I've had, interestingly enough, I've had a handful of people, five or six of you guys, come to me over the last couple of weeks, asking about giving. You know, how, what does it mean to be a Christian, or what's biblical giving? And so, when that happens to me, when I have different people randomly come and ask me the same question... It gets my attention. So I'm going to, I want to talk about uh, that today. Um, I want to discuss the topic of giving from my perspective. Would it surprise any of you that I see things a little bit differently than maybe what you've experienced in the past? <laughs> so it might be a little different than other messages you've heard on giving before. To my memory, <clears throat> I've been a pastor for like 25 years or more. This is only the third time I've ever spoken on the topic. Um, honestly, honestly, I don't like to talk about money. Why is that? Well, I've been a Christian a long time. And I've really seen the topic abused uh, too often. And I just I don't want to be part of that. You know? Is there anyone here that hasn't felt manipulated or coerced or guilted or shamed as part of an offering at some kind of church service, you know? I mean, I have. I mean, there are times where I go, and my heart is to give. I, I, I want to be generous. I want to give. I have money in my pocket. And they go on and on and on. And I'm like, now you get nothing. I put my money back in my pocket. <laughs> I've done that. I have no joke. It's like, if the offering takes longer than worship, that's a problem for me. You know? And so, so, I don't like talking about money. And it can appear self-serving. I get my salary from the church. So, talking about money kind of, you know, I don't know, it's kind of weird for me. So, I, I've just refused to go there. And frankly, I, I'm, a, 
I'm a minister, not a businessman. I'm a pretty good minister and a pretty lousy businessman, actually. Financial issues have not always been the highest priority to me. Now, that's not to say I don't think they're important. They just haven't been important to me. I know they're important, but there are other things that capture my attention. And so for that reason and, and, and more, I just haven't preached on giving very often. So today, in this one of, uh, I want to do three things. I want to, um, actually, it's inspired by three things. First is your questions. People ask me questions. I want to respond to those questions. Um, also, I want to look at what giving to the church looks like from a relational perspective as opposed to a performance perspective, right? And the whole living love thing, I talked about performance-based Christianity, right? This is, this is a big part of it for those of us who have been raised in the church. And in small part, um, this message has been inspired in small part by some of the writings of John Piper. I found it, some of his work helpful. So with that in mind, I, wanted, I have three main points today. I've titled this message, New Covenant Giving. And so I want to look at Old Testament and tithing. I want to look at the New Testament on tithing. And then I want to ask better questions. Those, those will be the three points. So I do hope to offer a different take, a little bit more outside-the-box take on giving today. I think this topic is profoundly significant for two reasons. One, it can really set you free. It can lead to great liberty, and that's very important to me. Excuse me. And the other, I think that there's an opportunity, if you can embrace this, where it will actually enhance your relationship with God. Now, like I said, I'm sharing from my perspective. I have, I have two main driving principles in my life. One is freedom, and the other is love. That's why this arm has freedom on it, or liberty in Hebrew, and this is passion. It's talking about a passionate love. Those, those are the two principles that guide me. Anybody go bowling with a bunch of kids, and they put the bumpers in the, in the gutter, right? This way when the kids throw the ball down the lane, they don't throw a gutter ball. It bounces off the bumpers. It stays. Well, that's what love and freedom are for me. They're the bumpers in, <laughs> in, in my gutters. So it keeps me going down the path I want to go on. So just, I'm just sharing. This is my perspective. This is my heart for you. So if you have your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, please follow along as I begin reading verse 6. This is Paul, and he writes, he says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So Lord, I thank you for your word, for the power and the truth that's in your word. I pray that your word would have its full impact on us today and change us and make us to be more like Jesus. Amen? So keep your finger in 2 Corinthians 9. I'll work my way back there. So what I offer you today is an extensive study on the topic of New Covenant giving, but it's not an exhaustive study. There are many and varied opinions on the topic out there in Christendom. And so I encourage you to study for yourself. You know, this is, I'm offering you one slice of it. There's lots more out there. I have a vast library that I've collected over the years. Some of the greatest minds the church has ever known are represented on those shelves. And they disagree with each other, <laughs> right? So, you know, you may have an opinion that's different than mine, and I'm okay with that. But I can only give you what I have. So like I said, I encourage you to study this topic for yourself. This message reflects my heart, my convictions. So you might want to take notes today, and so you can look back to stuff. I'm going to reference various texts, but I may not read all of them. So again, for that sake, you might find it beneficial to take, jot down some notes today. So let's begin with, a, with some Old Testament examples of tithing. 
Let's look at Abraham and tithing. The oldest reference to tithing in the Bible is found in Genesis 14, uh, chapter 14, verses 1 to 20. Abram, later to be known as Abraham, is pursuing a king who had captured his nephew Lot. He's out to rescue Lot. And uh, with 300 armed men, uh, Abram defeats the king and not only saves his nephew Lot, but they get back all the goods that had been stolen uh, from Sodom. On his way back home, Abram runs, runs into this mysterious figure named Melchizedek. And verse 18 refers to Melchizedek as the king of Salem and as a priest of the Most High God. Pretty interesting that at this stage in the story that there is a priest of the Most High God. That by itself would probably be an interesting study for those of you who enjoy it. So the scripture goes on to say how Melchizedek brought out bread and wine to Abram, and he blessed him with these words. He said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to the God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hands. Verse 20 simply says, And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. This is the first reference to tithing. To those of you who may not know, I'm sure you do, but if you don't, the word tithe means a tenth. And so that's the first example of tithing. So take note here. Scripture doesn't demand 10% of the spoils of war. At this point, Scripture doesn't demand, this is before Moses, before the Mosaic law, this is Abraham. At this point, Scripture doesn't demand that a tenth be given to a priest. The law of Moses, which has yet to be written, doesn't itself require a tenth on the spoils of war. Matter of fact, there's no command anywhere in Scripture that soldiers have to give one-tenth of their captured spoils to a priest. But Abram did it. And it seems to be a token of gratitude. An offering to God, who had just given him such a great victory. So, this is our first encounter with the tithe. And the giver, take note, the giver is not paying God, the giver is not paying God to somehow stir him into action, right? All the activity had already taken place. There seems to be one where the giver is responding to what God had already done, how he had just fought for him and given him this great victory, this great blessing. That's a pretty different distinction that you want to remember. So that's the first account. Let's look at Jacob, Abraham's grandson. Let's look at Jacob and tithing. The next time we hear of tithing is in Genesis 28, verses 13 to 22. Jacob had a dream at Bethel in which God promised to be with him and give him a great land and many descendants. And so Jacob responds to this dream with a vow in verses 20 and 22. The scripture says, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I've set up as a pillar will be God's house, and of all that you've given me, I will give you a tenth. Hmm. Interesting take on the tithe as well. This sounds like an if-then situation, right? If party one does this, party two does that. So God, if you'll do this for me, then I'll do that for you. That was his agreement. Kind of sounds different than most of the teaching we hear in churches today, doesn't it? (laughs) Most of the teaching we hear in churches today turns that around. If you give, then God will work for you. Well, I don't know. That's not how, that wasn't the agreement Jacob had. I'm just telling you what's in the book. But you could study that. If God blesses me, then I will give. And additionally, I think we can see from this text that Jacob seems to acknowledge that everything he has is a gift from God. In verse 22, he says, And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Jacob seems to be acknowledging that everything that he has, that it, it came from God. So I think it could be said, honestly, that this tithe isn't really something that Jacob produced. 
and that he then transfers over to God's possessions. But instead, Jacob's perspective is that the tithe appears to be a symbolic representation or some type of symbolic statement that actually all he has is from God. Are you tracking with me? Does that seem like a fair rendering of the text? I don't, I don't think I'm trying to wrestle something out of it that's not in there. Okay, so how about we're still in the Old Testament and tithing, right? So I want to look at the Old Testament, the New Testament, and I want to ask better questions. Old Testament. How about Moses and tithing? Things change here, okay? At the time of Moses, tithing did become part of the law, which governed the people of Israel. There were some very specific instructions and directions that were given. And the first that we see, there are two key, key texts. The first is in Leviticus 27, 30 to 33. And it simply says, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Verse 32 goes on to say, The entire tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod, will be holy to the Lord. He must not pick out the good from the bad, or make substitutions. So that term there, holy to the Lord, simply means that, that this portion, this one-tenth, is set aside, it's set apart uh, for the Lord. Here Moses is explicitly defining what is to be tithed. Namely, uh, the produce of the field, their grain, the produce of the trees, their fruit, and the herds and the flocks. In other words, the fruit of their labor. The other key text is in De- Deuteronomy 14, uh, 22 to 29. It's a long text. I-, I just want to share with you six observations I have from it. But I encourage you, take yourself a note, read Deuteronomy 14, 22 to 29, so I don't have to read that long text, and your mind wanders and goes somewhere else because you're not really listening to me anyway. <laughs> I know, I do that too. So that main text, um, seven, seven observations from the Deuteronomy 14 text. One is that the tithe was part of a festival meal in a holy place. That was the main portion of it, that this would be what was gathered, the fruit, the grain, the, the flocks, that this would be used as part of a celebration, a meal that they would have together. And they would do this in a holy place. Later it would become Jerusalem. The second Observation is that um, it was required, the tithe was required of the Israelites so that they would learn the fear of the Lord. That's verse 23. In verses 24 to 26, um, they're given logistical instructions. So what happens if you have this guy who's like super wealthy? He's just done really, really well. He's got lots of trees. He's got lots of herds. A tithe of it to try and move it from wherever he was to some far off holy place to have this celebration is, just becomes untenable. So they gave logistical instructions. Hey, you can, you can sell that tithe and then take the money, and when you get to the holy place, you can buy stuff as part of the festival celebration. So just, that's what verses 24 to 26 are. Verse, um, verse 27 says that another portion of the tithe was for the Levites. These were the religious professionals of the day. These were the priests. They didn't have, they didn't have uh, fields of their own. They didn't have flocks of their own. So a portion of the tithe was given uh, for the Levites. Fifth observation is that there was a special tithe. Every three years, they would uh, collect money um, for two purposes. One, again, to support the Levites. This is what um, verses 28 and 29 are telling us. But also to, to provide for the three um, most helpless groups in that society, the refugees, the orphans, and the widows. So they would take a special offering for those groups of people. And that's like a benevolence fund. It was replenished every three years to meet the needs of those who had great needs. The sixth was so that the Lord would bless them. So this kind of switches it around from Jacob. That if they were faithful in giving as an act of mercy to people, and as an expression of gratitude to God, that God would bless them. And the seventh observation from that text, and I do encourage you to read it on your own, is that tithes that were given to God 
For all practical, practical purposes, it was given to people. The tithes that was collected, that would be set apart as holy unto the Lord, what was given to God was, was given to people. It was either as part of that festival meal, or for the support of the Levites, or for the needs, uh, to meet the needs of, of the widows and orphans and the refugees. So why was tithes given to people? Well, a couple of practical reasons. It's kind of hard to give God a check, and I don't know where his bank account is. Um, but more seriously, we can't enrich God. There's nothing that we can do to enrich him. He's perfect. He's whole. He is absolutely complete. There's nothing we have or what we possess that we can offer that can enrich him in any way. He has no need that our possessions can satisfy. But he is honored by the way we treat each other with our possessions. That makes sense? Okay. There's a couple of other different passages um, in the Old Testament. Sure. Um, God has no need that our possessions can satisfy. However, he can be honored by the way we treat one another with our possessions. The father likes it when his kids play nice together. When one kid blesses another kid, it makes the father happy. Right? So my son has had a really good year, maybe the best year he's had working in Hollywood. Um, he works on the, the TV show Parks and Recreation. He got a little promotion this year. He's, got, he's doing better. He's not doing outrageously good, but you know, he's, he's been at it for five years. It's been a pretty good year. His sister just graduated, just finished grad school, right? And she's working her first job. And he loves his sister. And so he decided that he would buy her a 32-inch flat-screen LCD TV as a Christmas present. That's a pretty generous gift for him. He had the money to give this year. It rocked her world. She was thrilled. You know, you know what that did to my father's heart? I was thrilled that my son would love my daughter that way with his possessions. I think it kind of looks like that. When we take what we have and we give it to somebody else who could benefit from it, it makes dad happy. I think that's what it looks like. I think that's a real-life picture of it. If you come Christmas Eve, you get to meet my son. He's awesome. There's a couple of other important passages on tithing in the Old Testament. Numbers 18, 21 to 24. Chronicles 31, uh, verses 4 to 18. And I won't unpack these completely for you this morning, um, just for the lack of time. But they both point to that tithes were especially used to provide for the needs of the Levites. Uh, Numbers 18.24 says, I give to the Levites as their inheritance the tithes that the Israelites present as an offering to the Lord. That's pretty cut and dry, right? And 2 Chronicles 31.4 says that Hezekiah ordered the people living in Jerusalem to give the portion due the priests and Levites so that they could devote themselves to the law of the Lord. So tithing was God's prescribed way of supporting religious professionals and religious organizations. So that's, that's a quick overview in the thumbnail of an Old Testament look at tithing. That's how they were to do it and what it was used for. Let's look at the New Testament and tithing. Let's look at Jesus and tithing. As we come over to the New Testament, the, the picture changes again, and pretty significantly. Jesus only mentions tithing two times. In scripture, And both times, um, it's hardly a glowing support of it. Both times he references it uh, concerning the legalistic abuse of tithing. Uh, let me read them to you. Matthew 23, 23. This is the well-want-to-you scriptures, all right? This is the group you don't ever want to be numbered among. <laughs> God shows up and says, woe-want-to-you. It's not a good day, right? All right. So here's Jesus. He says, Woe unto you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And then in Luke 18, 9 to 14, again, Jesus is speaking. He says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness, um, and look down, oh, sorry, misreading here. Some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
Now, in the culture of that day, these are the people on the two polar opposites, right? You have the uber-religious Pharisees on one end, and you have the Shylock, loan sharks, criminal tax collectors on the other end. Maybe they're not all that far apart from each other. <laughs> At least not in Jesus' book. So the Pharisee, and Jesus goes on, he's telling this parable. He says, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. He prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. So those are the two times Jesus represents tithing. Like I said, hardly a ringing endorsement of tithing by Jesus. However, he doesn't completely reject tithing either. Um, at least not for, not for the Israelites. There's still, you know, yet still he seems much more concerned with the weightier matters of the law, like he says, justice and mercy and faith. So that's Jesus' tithing. What did St. Paul have to say about tithing? Nothing. St. <laughs> Paul had nothing to say about tithing. Nada, nothing, zip, zero, zilch, nothing. Whether he taught his churches to tithe when he founded them or not, we don't know. He doesn't, he doesn't speak about tithing. However, Paul does speak about giving. He doesn't reference the Old Testament law of tithing, but he does speak a lot about giving. So what does he say about giving? 1 Corinthians 16.2, On the first day of every week, uh, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Paul's saying, hey, you should set aside some money so that I can, so I can get that money when you come. You use it for you know, his missionary journeys. That's 1 Corinthians 16.2. In 2 Corinthians 8.3, mentioning giving, Paul says this, and they gave as much as they were able, able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. That sounds like pretty generous giving. And then we come back to the text that I started with, where Paul speaks about giving. I think this is a profoundly significant text. He says, remember this. The scripture tells you to remember something. You know what? It's good to remember it. It's important. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. So there is a spiritual principle of sowing and reaping. Seems like, according to Paul's writings, that principle is still in effect. And he goes on to say, each one must do as he's made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. Each one must do as he's made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion. I've been way too many church services where I've felt compelled by men to give, where I've felt coerced or manipulated by men to give. And I'm pretty sure this verse is saying not to do it that way. Each one must do as he's made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, so you may always have enough of everything and may provide an abundance for every good work. There's only one other New Testament reference on tithing that I could find. That's Hebrews chapter 7, verses 4 to 12. And it's, a, it's really a reference back to the Genesis 14 text that we looked at, and it's simply showing that Christ is, is like Melchizedek. So where the New Testament is almost silent, it has very little to say about tithing, the New Testament has lots to say about giving. Uh, the verses I just spoke to you about from Paul. Um, but let's look at some of the, these New Testament verses on giving. Luke three eleven, It says, He who has two coats... Let him share with him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Well, that's interesting. That's not 10%. That's 50%, right? If you have two coats, you give away one coat, you've given away 50% of your coats. That sounds like pretty generous giving. 
In Luke, eight, uh, Luke 19, 8, Zacchaeus stood up and said, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. Right? He was deeply impacted by God's um, interaction in his life. Again, like, I give you half, that's 50%. Jesus says in Luke 14, 33, So therefore, whoever of you does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. All that he has? That kind of sounds like 100%. And not 10%, right? Or any other percent. All, what's all? All's 100%. I'm just telling you what's in the book. I think sometimes we hear teaching, and it just kind of becomes this filter through which we look at Scripture. And sometimes it's good to take a look at what the book actually says. How about Acts 2, 44? All who believed were together and had all things in common... And they sold their possessions and, good, and goods and distributed them to all as any had need. I don't know, sounds like something greater than 10%. Acts 4.34 says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. I don't know, that sounds like extreme generosity to me. In 2 Corinthians 8, I mean, I touched on this one before, but in verse 2, the verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 8 says, Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. Entirely on their own. They were generous to the extreme in their poverty, but they did it entirely on their own, Scripture says. So, it's a, you know, these, these, these believers, Paul's referencing, they, they had extremely generous hearts. So just to, to sum, sum up the New Testament, Jesus speaks very little on tithing. He only speaks of it in, in correcting the Pharisees. Yet he does affirm it as an Old Testament practice. Now giving, on the other hand, is very much a first century church practice. People gave generously. The spiritual principle of sowing and reaping still seems to be in effect today. And people gave in freedom, not reluctantly, not under compulsion. Giving wasn't limited to tithing. The New Testament standard for giving, as the New Testament standard for everything, is Jesus. Jesus gave all. That's the New Covenant standard of giving. Jesus is our model and our example in all things. Right? Scripture says that our lives are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We're His. We're His bride. He's our bridegroom. He's Lord. And we're his. Everything is his. Everything is God's. Psalm 21, 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Right? There's no wiggle room in that. Everything is his. It's all his. So for these reasons, as I've looked at the Old and New, <laughs> New Testament, Old and New Covenants concerning tithing, I've come to believe that we just can't hold tithing up as the new covenant standard for giving. I just don't think we can do it. I think it's part of the old covenant, not part of the new covenant. In my humble opinion, it fails to capture the new covenant view of relationship with God. So let's look at those two covenants. Let's compare the two for a minute. Are we still under the law? For those of you who have been Christians for a while, you should know that we're no longer under the law. We're no, under, no longer under the Old Covenant. We're no longer under the law of Moses. Right? Jesus came to satisfy the requirements of the law. We're free. Not only did he satisfy the requirements, he's established a new covenant. There's a new standard of operating. And it's different from the old standard. Isn't it interesting that we have a new covenant, but in so many ways, we still live like we're under the old. That's what the whole series of messages on Live Loved was all about. 
Under the old covenant, you had to behave a certain way to garner favor with God. That's not how it works under the new covenant. That's not how I want to live. And, but this isn't a new problem. It's not, it's not unique to us. It's not u- unique to any of the churches I've pastored. It's an old problem. It was a problem from the beginning. That's why in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1, Paul writes to him, he says, It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And the context of that verse is this, that there are new covenant believers who are being forced to live under the old covenant. He's saying, don't do that. Guys, from the beginning, this has been a problem, and it's still a problem for us as believers. He calls it slavery, and appropriately so. Two verses later, Paul makes this point, and what he's trying to say is, hey, if you want to live by one part of the law, then you have to live according to all of the law. And he, the example he uses is in tithing, but, but circumcision, but the point still remains. He says, again, I declare to every man who will let himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. In other words, if you're trying to live a spiritual life by keeping one part of the law, then you're obligated to keep all 613 of them. So if you want to do this one, you've got to live by all of them. Well, I don't know. I think we can make a pretty good example concerning tithing with that as well. Let me give you a personal example of this from my life. This being forced or people putting requirements on you to live according to the law. As you know, i got tattoos, right? Well, would it surprise you that there were some Christian friends of mine who got pretty upset with me uh, as a 50-year-old that I decided to get tattooed? They did. They got really upset with me. And what they would do is they would quote to me Leviticus 19.28, which says, Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourself. I am the Lord. Well, it seems pretty, pretty cut and dry, right? But they, that's verse 28, but they seem to conveniently forget verse 27, which says, do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip the edges of your beard. <laughs> so they're, they're pretty well groomed, you know, they're styling, you know, they're looking, they're looking pretty sharp. And they're okay with the verse before it. They can do that and it's not a violation of law, but a few ounces of ink really got me in big trouble. <laughs> right? So my, my couple of points here is that we're no longer under the law described here in Leviticus, either the cut in the hair or the tattoos. There's more that could be said on that, but, uh, on tattooing, but that's a, another sermon. But how can you apply verse 29 when you're so very well-groomed and overlook verse 27, you know? It does seem inconsistent, but it's human nature. This is my point here. It's human nature. We embrace the law when it suits our personal preferences. And you know what's sad? People have actually broken friendship with, over, with this. They've broken friendship with me over this. They've, we've been friends for a decade, and they severed relationship with me because I got tattooed. I'm like, really? All right, so even if, like, even say I was, like, really wrong. Let's say I was completely wrong. This is the stupidest thing I ever did, and I never should have done it. We've been friends for a decade. Man, I would hope that at least there are a couple other good things that could outweigh this. Yeah? <laughs> There was a time when you really trusted me. I was part of your inner circle. Yeah, you cut me out over a few ounces of ink. And the book says, let's see, Jesus said, all men will know you are my disciples if you don't have tattoos. No, no, that's not what it says. He says, all men will know you are my disciples if you tithe. No, it doesn't say that either. All men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Right? So you're going to hold fast to this tithing thing, but you're not going to love me. Man, it is straining out gnats. And swallowing camels. But it's what we do as people, right? We have these personal preferences. We have these hardcore uh, convictions that we hold on to, and it's unshakable for us. So anyway, back to tithing. So if this is true, if I'm accurate, and hey, you may study it and think, you know what, so wacky, you're just, you know, off your rocker. But if I'm right, then why do pastors and churches practice tithing? Why is this such a popular concept? In almost every church I've ever been to. Well, it's kind of like the tattoo thing. We have an agenda. It's not an evil agenda, but we have an agenda. You see, 
we need to fund our programs, and we need to pay our staff, and we need to cover our church facility expenses. And if we have a record of tithing, and we can require that of people, it's a whole lot easier to come up with a budget. That's really what it's about. We want to be able to have a budget so we can cover our expenses. It's not bad. It's not a bad thing to pay the staff or, or to pay the bills or to fund the programs. Those are all good things. But why and how we do it can be an issue. So requiring a tithe allows for greater budget control. It helps church leaders fund their vision. And it, be, and it becomes the practice of a church. But it, comes, it becomes the practice at a price, at a great price. And I think the price is this, spiritual freedom, because I think it puts us back under the law with all of its guilt and shame and manipulation and coercion that goes with it. It costs us spiritual freedom. And worse than that, it distorts our relationship with God. Somehow we get into our head that if I give money to the church, God's going to like me better. Or maybe he'll love me. It just takes us back to that whole performance thing. It takes us, you know, Jesus came to take us from requirements to relationship. And this is just one subtle way that we go from relationship back to requirements again. And I have a problem with that. So God will love me, and God will bless me if I perform well in my giving. I don't think that's why Jesus came and died on the cross. Jesus came to take us from requirements to relationship. I think when we just give freely, as God leads us, it's much more relational. And that's what I want to see happen. I want to see us have a relationship with God. So this leads me to my better questions, my final point. Let's ask better questions. Instead of asking whether or not should I tithe, let's ask questions like this. Lord, what are you doing, and how can I do it with you? That's a better question. Lord, what are you doing, and how can I do it with you? Lord, you're rich in mercy. You love, love me lavishly. My life and all I have is yours. What do you want me to do with it? Well, make it simple. Lord, how much do you want me to give to church this week, this month, or this year? Lord, what do you want me to do? If you heard nothing else today, hear this. God doesn't want your stuff. He wants your heart. He doesn't want your stuff. He wants your heart. What we do with our stuff is a pretty good example of what's in our heart. Right? But he wants your heart. These better questions do wonderful things. They foster relationship between you and God. You own your relationship. You're engaged in it. You're not just writing checks on automatic pilot or punching the spiritual clock. You're asking him. You're coming before him as a son or a daughter. Everything I have is yours. I have two coats. Do you want me to do something with the second coat? I have this much money. What do you want me to do with it? And then he speaks to you and you respond to him. That's relational, isn't it? These better questions cultivate freedom above religious obligation. And they build faith. Let me just say something about faith here. Because it'll be an element. At some point... I just tell you from my life experience, he'll ask you to give more than you want to give. Four times in our 31 years of marriage, God has led us to decisions that cut our income in half. I can tell you, Tom would never, you know, initially vote for that on his own. <laughs> Probably the thought would never occur to me, but he led us to make decisions that the, that the result of it would be we lose half our income. When the kids were small, Nadine was making more money than me, and we made the decision she was going to stay home. It was 50% of our income. It was hard. It paid off in the long haul. I think it worked for us. I'm not saying it's for everybody, but it's what he led us to do, and there was a cost involved with it. He told me to go plant a church, 
And so I went from New York to West Virginia. Do you know the cost of living is different in those two places? And so the incomes. I took a 60% pay cut to go there. And then other decisions that we've made. I've, I've done as much as a 75% cut in my income because I'm just trying to follow where he's leading and telling me to go. That's why faith is important, because there may be times, and he may not ask you to do what we did, and that's fine. I'm not saying, I'm not the standard, I'm just giving you examples. There may be times he asks you to do something that sounds ridiculous to you. His ways are not your ways. They're higher than your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. They're higher than your thoughts. And sometimes he asks us to do crazy, out-of-the-box things. And this is where faith is important. Listen to me. This is, you, would write, you want to write this down. I should make a bumper sticker on this, all right? Faith asks what before it asks how. Faith will ask what before it asks how. It's the only way faith can work. Now, if we ask how before we ask what, then we will limit our faith to our resources. If I'm only willing to believe in faith based upon the resources I have, That'll be the limits of what I believe God will do in my life. However, if you turn it around and you ask him what first, God, what do you want to do? And he tells you, his simply speaking to your heart what he wants will build your faith for how it's going to happen. When he tells you the what, you may have no idea how it's going to play out. But suddenly faith is in the mix. God, I know God spoke to me. God told me to do this. I know that I know that he said to do this. I don't know how it's going to work out yet. But he said to do it, so I, I will begin walking in that direction. Because I have faith for how. Now, listen to me. How is important. I'm not saying how is unimportant. How is very important. If you don't figure out the how, stuff's not going to get done. But from a spiritual perspective, if you ask him what first, he'll give you faith for how. And sometimes he gives you strategy for how. Faith asks the question, what? Before that's how. If we ever want to see God do God-sized things, it's going to require God. What's a God-sized thing? If we took, if each of us in this room took 100% of all the resources we had and put it in one big pile, then that's a man-sized thing. That's the best that we could do. A God-sized thing means that we take all of our resources, pull it together, and we still need God to be all in or it's not going to happen. That's a God-sized thing. A God-sized thing is a thing that's more than us. The more than the best of our efforts and our resources can produce. That's a God-sized thing. You have to have faith for God-sized things. You have to stand at the edge of the Red Sea <laughs> with an army on your tail believing something's going to happen. I don't think Moses knew before, beforehand. I don't know if he thought they were going to fly over, they were going to get transported, if there's suddenly a bridge was going to appear. I had, I'm probably in that place where I had more faith than the fact that the waters would part and we'd go across on dry land. But Moses did what before he knew how? And then God did a God-sized thing, and they got to the other side of it. Faith will ask what before it asks how. If we ask God what he wants to do first, it will increase our faith for how he wants us to do it. So the question is no longer how much must I give or can I afford to tie 10% of my income to the church, but the question really becomes, God, can I trust you? Can I trust God? Can I trust that God will lead me? Now I know that this perspective is maybe outside of the box for some of you guys. Maybe you're already beginning to expect nothing other than that from me. I don't know. I know that many of you have been taught for years the practice of tithing. And I have too. I did it for a very long time. So listen to me. If you're at peace with tithing, if that works for you, I'm not saying that tithing is evil. If you want to continue to give 10%, that's between you and God. That's fine. I just want you to do it in freedom. Not out of some sense of religious obligation. I'm not concerned with what percentage you give. I'm concerned with your heart. I'm concerned with why you give. I'm concerned that you would give in freedom. That's very important to me. And that it be motivated by your relationship with God. So how much you give 
is between you and God. It's not between you and me. I love that the way this church operates, I have no idea what anybody gives. And I couldn't be happier. I really don't want to know. So like I said, how much you give between you and God, it's not between you and me. God loves you either way, and so do I. So from this place of love, as your pastor, this is what I would ask of you. I encourage you to give generously. I exhort you to give from a place of freedom and joy. I promise not to manipulate you concerning money. I promise. I challenge you to start asking new questions. I challenge you to start asking God new questions about giving. And I challenge you to take a leap of faith and do whatever he tells you to do. And finally, as your pastor, I ask that you would please give generously of your time and your energy and your money to the work of this church. Because I think it's worthwhile. So next week I'll begin the new series of messages titled Live Love. This is my one of today. Question? Well, I think that's. I think the Malachi three uh, is is a great text, and I think it falls under under the old covenant. You know, I think it was a requirement of the old covenant. It was a challenge to the Israelites to, hey, you know, do what I've told you to do here, and watch what happens. And so the application to now would be the same, except I'm just going to take the percentages off of it. God, what do you want me to do? I I want to foster your relationship with God. I don't see my role as a behavior modifier. I don't want to modify your behavior. Matter of fact, I really feel kind of weird when I try and do that. I think my role is to be a matchmaker. I'm going to help you fall madly and passionately in love with God, who loves you lavishly and extravagantly. And then let him impact you and make you who he wants you to be. So I want to do everything I can to help foster that relationship between you and him. This is a big one for us. What we do with our stuff is no small thing. And for that reason, all the more, I don't want to put my fingers on it. I want you to go to him. And then whatever he tells you to do, test him. He tells you to do it. See if it works. See if he'll be faithful to his side of it. He's never failed me. Do I look like I've missed a meal? (laughs) (laughs) So let's pray. Lord, you're so good. Lord, I pray for myself and for my friends here. Set us free. I want us to live, Lord. I really want us to be a people who live in the fullness of the freedom that's ours in Christ Jesus. Lord, would you take us um, in ever-increasing ways away from requirements and toward relationship. Take us to deeper places of intimacy with you. And so, Lord, to this end, I pray for my friends that you would give them ears to hear you and eyes that see what you're doing. Speak to them. Tell them what you want them to do with their stuff. And then with that, Lord, I ask that you would pour out faith upon them that they could trust you and that they could do just that. And, and in it, that their relationship with you would be enhanced, that their trust in you would grow. Make that so, God. Bless us the rest of our days. Truly, Lord, for our friends who are home struggling with this flu bug that's going around, touch them and heal them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Have an awesome day. We'll see you next Sunday.